This podcast discusses topics that may cause distress to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Wilder, Kentucky is a small town located just south of Cincinnati, Ohio. Once a quiet town with not much to its name, the town has become a hotspot for tourists, paranormal investigators, and the lovers of the macabre. They come in droves in search of a place by the name of Bobby Mackey's Music World, a nightclub and tavern that may just be one of the most haunted and most sinister locations in America. But where did these rumours begin? Who haunts Bobby Mackey's and why? Hello, my little ghosties. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kaylin. And this is Ghostie, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime and paranormal. Let's get into it. Yay! Season <laughs> finale! <laughs> the, why did you sound so unenthusiastic? Yeah, okay. You're Woo. like, <laughs> It's 9 p.m. and I am conscious, conscious of your neighbors and your fiancé sleeping upstairs. I could not care less about neighbors. <laughs> they have 14 kids. I can be a little bit loud. 14 kids. They do. They Well, I think she's got like... Six, I think. Wow. Yeah, she got a lot. Speaking of big families. Born on October 25th, Mm -hmm. 1872 in Greencastle, Indiana, Pearl Bryan was the 11th of 12 children. Born to Alexander, a successful stock breeder and dairy operator, and Susan Bryan. Mama wanted 12 kids. She told Papa on everything. (laughs) I was like, no thanks. (laughs) Pearl's family were well-to-do and traveled in the most elite social circles of their community. Pearl, 20, was considered a pretty and charming young woman, and the people of Greencastle were very fond of her, especially 27-year-old aspiring dentist and Maine native Scott Jackson. I don't like him. He's a dentist. I know what's going on. I know what's happening. (laughs) Um, I know what happened in the busted little case. I don't like him. So, Jackson was described as 5 foot 6 inches with blonde hair and steel gray eyes. He was the son of a transatlantic sea captain and had traveled extensively by the time he was a teen. When his father died, he moved with his mother to New Jersey, to Jersey City, New Jersey, and took a job with the Pennsylvania Railroad Railroad Company. His boss was charged with embezzling several thousand dollars, and although Jackson was never charged with anything, he lost his job. His mother eventually moved to Greencastle, Indiana. Pearl was described as a, quote, Sunday school and church worker, sprightly and vivacious, with a, and a social favorite in her home, end quote. She had, quote, bright blue eyes, blonde hair that shaded to auburn, and a, a pretty face, the almost flawless complexion of an unspoiled country girl, end quote. Jackson had struck up a... You good? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about what you were saying, because I'm like, is this the same? Because there was two dentist students involved yes and i was like where's this other guy from and then you were like he moved to new jersey and i was like this has nothing to do with indiana i'm so confused (laughs) (laughs) i'm just i'm just thinking about it i'm deep in thought (laughs) there are some this is wild the story is crazy i believe you (laughs) um so jackson had struck up a friendship with william wood who was pearl's second cousin I also saw just cousin, but you know how people are just like, oh, that's my cousin, no matter how many, like, you know, it's a third cousin, second cousin, whatever. So. Sure. <clears throat> I only have one person in my life that I say that about, and her name is Alethea. She was married into the family. Her right. mom was. Right. So my she, mom's cousins are my second cousin once removed or something, or first cousin once removed. I don't know. Oh, I get but, what you're saying. Cause, yeah, but Amy... I just call them my cousins because... Amy's my second cousin because that's my dad's right. first cousin. Yeah, right? so she's your yeah. cousin. Yeah. 
I get what you're saying. William had introduced Jackson to his pretty single cousin, and the two became friends, meeting whenever Jackson visited his mother in Greencastle. The relationship changed, however, the summer of uh, 1885. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did change. (laughs) Not long after Jackson left for school in Cincinnati, Pearl Mm -hmm. discovered that she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. With Jackson's kid? Yeah. Good grief, Charlie Brown. I thought this was just like a random attack of a random pregnant woman that they just saw. Nope. Pearl confided in her cousin Will, who wrote to Scott. He wrote back to Woods and told him to, quote, tell the girl to come to Cincinnati, end quote. Ah, yeah. Bring her here so I can murder her. I'm sorry. I already know how this is going. I'm like, I'm already suspicious. (laughs) Um, She arrived by train at Cincinnati's Grand Central Station on a Tuesday night, the 28th of January, 1896. Upon arriving in Ohio, she went to the Ohio College of Dental Surgery to find Scott, but was unsuccessful. Instead, she rented a room in the Indiana house in downtown Cincinnati under her sister's name, Mrs. Maud Stanley. Pearl was able to locate Scott via a messenger, and the two played the two made plans to meet. He did not arrive alone. At lunch with Pearl and his roommate, Alonzo Walling, who was 21, a native, a native of Mount Carmel, Indiana, um, he was described as, quote, five feet nine inches with dark hair and hazel eyes under heavy brows that almost met, end quote. <laughs> he was um, short and had a unibrow. That's what I hear. Isn't super short. It's, that's how tall I am. Okay. But, like, I'm short compared to everyone, so I don't know what the standard height is. Isn't the standard height five foot seven, five foot eight for a woman, I guess? I think so. Yeah. I'm tall for a woman, uh-huh. apparently. I guess, but, like, today's standards, women are like, I want you to be, like, six foot five, so, like... Oh, I don't... I yeah. hear... I was just joking around about being short. That's not well, actually I short. mean, <laughs> honestly, I've got pictures. He is the more attractive of the two. Is he really? Yeah. Is he... If you saw him separately outside, would you be like, yeah, he's attractive, or yeah. would you... Really? I wouldn't be, like, frothing at the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Wait to that frothing at the mouth. <laughs> but I would be like, oh, yeah, he's a good-looking guy. Like, okay. It was unfortunate that he was... The other guy, Scott, was just like, uh, Watch me be attracted to Scott now. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, yeah. I, I'm attracted to blonde hair, blue eyes. Well, it's a black reason. and white photo, so maybe. Oh, that's <laughs> maybe true. It will be okay. That's true. I didn't anyway, know that. so Scott and Walling had met while in dental school uh, in Indiana. However, their friendship didn't really develop until they met again in Cincinnati. Scott let Pearl know that he had no intentions of marrying her. She was in Cincinnati purely on the purpose of terminating her pregnancy. Um, An employee of a downtown business may have heard the last words Pearl Bryan would ever speak in public. He told investigators that on the 30th of January, 1896, he saw Pearl, Scott and Alonzo eating lunch. He heard Pearl say, quote, I'm going back to my home and Scott Jackson, you will have to answer to my brother Fred for this, end quote. Can I I predict about what's going to happen? Sure. First off. What's with these men and getting these women pregnant and not marrying them? Back then. Nowadays, mm. I mean, it sucks, but like... I mean, if it's consensual and they don't want to get married, then fine. I mean, I'm not saying that but back, she raped, she was raped. I'm saying, no. like, back, if you two decide as a couple, like, we don't want to get married, but we want to have a family, yeah. then fine. That's different. Yeah. That's different. Um, But back then, it was a thing to... You didn't even, like whisper to each other without like somebody standing right there (laughs) and like you couldn't touch or anything 
and it was in like if they did, it was standard to force them to get married. Right, shotgun wedding. I guess, yeah. And it was just <clears throat> like, what's with all these men? Just like, I guess, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, what do you think happens? Oh yeah, duh. <laughs> I think he was probably like, oh, I don't want her brother to come, so. I guess I'll just murder her and just asked his roommate. I didn't read anything about this, yeah, so I have no idea friend. if this is true. Um, but I, I, I assume that he just randomly asked his roommate, because I thought I saw Alfonso's name in there for some reason, um, to be like, hey, do you want to just, like, kill her with me? <laughs> and I assume Alfonso's like... Finger guns, yes, sir. Let's go kill someone. <laughs> I got nothing else to do on this Tuesday night. Oh, and I want to put something crazy out there. Do okay. they like? Do they like play with her teeth or something? Because they're dentist students. Uh, it's not in here if they did. Oh, okay. Um, I just want to. I just want to ask because <clears throat> I've heard some crazy things done by crazy no. serial killers. <laughs> However, dental students does somewhat come into play. More being a medical student does come into play. Mm. So, on February 1st, uh, 1896, 17-year-old Johnny Hewling was on his way to Lock Farm in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, where he worked as a farmhand for Colonel John Locke and his family. As he walked, he spotted a woman lying on the ground with her dress up around her head. Oh, my God. Or, side note, where it ought to have been. Quote, I didn't know if she was drunk or dead. Lots of women from the town used to come out there with the soldiers from the post. It was a lonely spot, and they often used it for a trysting place. We had lots of women out there who were drunk, end quote. Hewling ran off and informed Colonel Locke, uh, who sent for the police. Sheriff John Plummer and County Coroner Bob Tingley were the first officials on the scene. Though townsfolk, townsfolk flocked to Locke Farm, say that ten times fast, in droves to catch a morbid glimpse of the deceased. This is just the best little case out of water. <laughs> Thinking that the woman was a prostitute from Cincinnati, the Kentucky investigators called for detectives Cal Crim and Jack McDermott. <laughs> which, how, like, Detective Crim and McDermott? Are you yeah. seriously? That's like some, like, detective <laughs> series yeah. from the 80s or something. I like, said that just... in the Bessie Little episode. I was like, if this is not but the But Cal Crim names... and Jack McDermott, like, yeah. that's just like, I would watch the heck out of that show. Yeah. What was uh, Chief Farrell, right? What was his name? William Farrell, I think. It was like William Farrell for the Bessie Little case. And I think like, you're thinking of Will Farrell. No, it was like Chief Farrell. I don't know. It was I don't Chief, remember. It was Chief Farrell, but I, I think his first name was William. Or Charles. Something like that. I don't know. But like, there was a lot of names out there. Like, there was an investigative reporter and yeah. like a bunch of other stuff with the different names. And I was like, this is like, if this is not 1800s names, like, I don't know what is. Yeah. But it's just like crim, like criminal. Yeah. Like Detective oh, that's Crim. true. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, With a K? Uh, C. C-R-I-M. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> um, uh, Crim and McDermott kept track of the Cincinnati brothels and the girls who worked for them. However, neither man recognized the deceased woman. The body of the woman lay on her chest, head down on the slope of a ravine. Her arms outstretched, her feet rested at the top of the hill in a pool of blood. Above her was more blood splattered across the leaves of privet bushes above. Located on the scene was a woman's number eight shoe on top of the bank and a few strands of blonde hair. The deceased was dressed in a light blue checkered dress 
a dark blue skirt and a union and union suit underwear, which is like long johns basically. Oh, okay. But I mean, it's February, February, oh, okay. February, so cold. Yeah. Um, on her hands were tan covered tan colored kid gloves, sliced open from grabbing a knife blade. Mm. Aside from her new shoes of exceptional quality, the officers noticed noted that she was shabbily dressed. Um, and from the deep wounds on her hands and arms, it seemed she had put up one hell of a fight. Which, go Pearl. Bloodhounds tracked the scent of the murderer to a nearby reservoir, and I know that you were really disappointed that we didn't have uh, a type of dog for Beechworth. Um, I thought you might want to know the names of the bloodhounds. They were Jack, Wheeler, and Stonewall. Yes! Stonewall? (laughs) Yes. What a weird name for a house. You need a quick uh, response, though, like a quick comeback name. Like, Jack, come here. Like, that's, you know. But Stonewall, come here. I feel like that's harder. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, continue. So the Bloodhounds, Jack Wheeler, and Stonewall, tracked the scent of the murderer to a nearby reservoir. Jack Wheeler's one name for one dog? Jack, comma, Wheeler, and Stonewall. So there's three dogs. Oh, okay. Causing investigators to believe that her head had been tossed into the water. So the police had it dragged along with two nearby ponds. However, in each case, they were unable to locate the head of the woman. Of Pearl? Mm-hmm. Well, they... of the deceased body. Well, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did it with, with Bessie, too. I was like, oh, and then uh, it was Bessie. Yes, and, like, spoiler <laughs> alert, it was Pearl. <laughs> well, like, that's crazy. Did yeah. they find the head later? Are we going to get there? A man by the name of Dr. Robert Carruthers performed an autopsy the following Monday, which revealed that the woman was decapitated with a dissecting knife. Interesting. Um, with the crime scene being so bloody, the doctor summarized that her heart was still beating, beating as her head was severed. Along with this finding, the woman was found to be around five months pregnant. Remember mm. that. For later. That's interesting. Bessie was pregnant, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the fetus was removed and taken to New York for preservation. Some time before the woman was murdered, she had ingested large quantities of cocaine, okay. which at the time you could go to the pharmacy and buy cocaine. I was about to say, it's yeah. it was medicinal back then, yes. yeah. So did Scott Jackson give this to her, hoping to kill the fetus? Dr. Carruthers said, quote, I am satisfied that the girl was not outraged, meaning raped. The man had a reason to kill her, and the result of the post-mortem shows it. What was the reason? I judge that it was a premeditated and cold-blooded murder. The girl, in my opinion, was from the country and was comparatively innocent. She was brought to Cincinnati to submit to a criminal operation. Once here, she was taken to Fort Thomas and murdered. Her head was taken away, horrible as it may seem, merely to prevent the identification of her body. End quote. Did they keep the head in one of their dorms? That's what I think. Or could they have killed Bessie and France was uh, telling the truth? Not France. France, whatever. (laughs) Oh, from Bessie Little? Yeah. Albert France, yeah. Was Albert just... Was Albert innocent the whole time? Did they actually kill her? Was this this one of many murders back then? We shall see. (laughs) Uh, Or not. Um, so this oh was God. the main dilemma. With no head to be found, identification of the murdered woman was a daunting task to take on. Her description, along with the description of the items found near her body, were released by the newspapers, 
including the transcription of the label inside the shoe, which read 22-11-625, so uh, 62,458. So like 22,11,62458. What does that mean? That was the label inside the shoe, which Uh. we'll get to. And this is the bit that blows my mind. Okay. (laughs) Amazingly... A Newport, Kentucky shoe merchant, Louis Pook, um, saw the shoes and recognized that a cobbler in Portsmouth, Ohio, Portsmouth, Ohio, manufactured them. Portsmouth is still around today. Pook had been visited by a friend who was the nephew of the owners of Lock Farm, where the body was found. While he had been intrigued about the murder, he restrained himself from visiting the scene of the crime scene of the crime, unlike the hordes of people who had not only gone to the scene, trampled all over it, but had left with gruesome souvenirs like bloody branches, buckets of bloody mud, like anything they could get their hands on, basically. You wonder when you hear stuff like the Salem Witch Trials and things like that, like how people can just be so awful Mm. And, like, there's no way that everyone in the town just, like, ganged up and, like, did all these awful things. But then, like, you come more recently closer mm. to us and you're like, yeah, well, because the Salem Witch Trials was 1600s. Was it? Or 1700? I think there are a few rich trials. 1792 Columbus sailed the Ocean Blue. So, like, it had to have been past that, maybe. I don't know. What I'm trying to say is... Once you get closer to our time, and you see people, how they've reacted today. Right. All the toilet paper, what do you mean? Like, of course people would do that. <laughs> yes, the same people who stole uh, bloody sticks and yes. mud were likened unto the uh, toilet paper yes. shortage of I've, 2020. You know they would. <laughs> same people that would hide a zombie bite. Ugh. Yes. Yeah. Um, instead, Louis took himself to White's funeral home in Newport, which was used as a morgue uh, and where the body was sent. His store being only a few blocks away, Pook closed up shop and walked over to the funeral home. Despite the crowd gathering and police guarding the entrances, Pook was familiar with many of the policemen and was therefore therefore allowed to enter the morgue without question. He said, quote, After taking a passing glance at the body, I stepped to where the neck was covered up, and there my attention was attracted to, to the way in which the head had been severed. From the body by a remarkably smooth incision, end quote. So one pass through? Yeah. Um, it was it was ascertained that it was done by a dissecting knife. So like a surgical knife. Okay. So one, I'm assuming, because if you... They're sharp. Yeah. I'm assuming by how clean it was, there was no sawing? Yeah. Good God. Yeah. The victim's head, or lack thereof, was not what attracted Louis' attention. Instead, he was focused on the tiny size of the victim's feet and her equally small pair of shoes. Shoes that were a size 3 and of good quality. This defying the theory that the victim was a poor prostitute, as was the consensus at this point in time. The code was deciphered as such. 22 meant a size 3. 11 a last B, quote-unquote, which is the form used to shape the shoe. And 62458 was the stock number given by the manufacturer. After speaking to the Newport Chief of Police, 
Louis was allowed to conduct his own investigation into the shoes and their manufacturer. Manufacturer. This detective work involved late night trips on the train and hurried telegrams and led him to find that the shoes had been sold in Greencastle, Indiana. Okay. On February 3rd, Detective Krim, Detective McDermott, and Sheriff Plummer left for Greencastle, bringing the clothing and identifiable shoes of the victim with them. There they learned that the salesman had sold nine out of the 12 pairs purchased. From there, they were able to trace the buyers, finding the owners of the first eight pairs of shoes alive and well. The owner of the final pair was Pearl Bryan. Oh, I, shoes. I, I didn't know it was Pearl Bryan. <clears throat> I am so, my mind but is shoes. blown. Yeah. Like, cause you, that, that couldn't happen today. Like, yeah. They'd be like, oh, this Nike was like one in 2000s old. You're right. Like, not only that, but Louis, Louis Pook is better than all of the Adelaide Police Department. No, oh my God, yes. <laughs> and like, Chief Farrell was the only like competent police right. in, in uh, Bessie's case. But his was mostly like... Hey, I kind of think this happened to her. Go dig her back up. Like it was, cool. yeah. it was more so like that. This is but like way better. Shoe dude, who was just detective? Like, hey, yeah, this is an interesting shoot. This is more in depth. This is right. crazy. So, Mister and Missus Bryan explained that their daughter was visiting friends in Indianapolis. However, a telegram exchange quickly revealed that Pearl had never arrived. The officers began to question Pearl's friends and family and learned about her association with Scott Jackson in Cincinnati. Idiot. Upon viewing the clothing, Pearl's parents confirmed to the officers that it belonged to their daughter, and a warrant was issued immediately for Scott's arrest after police learned of Wood's letter telling Jackson of the pregnancy. Double idiot. <laughs> of course it would lead back to him. These men think, they're like, oh, this is, I've washed my hands of this, and they're this not going to This is moving very me. quickly. Yeah. She was found on the 1st of February. On the 5th of February, Scott Jackson was arrested at the boarding room he, he and Alonzo shared in Cincinnati. Alonzo was apprehended the next day after Jackson accused him of committing the murder, who in turn accused Jackson. Oh my god. Walling told the police that Jackson originally had asked him to perform an abortion on Pearl. But Jackson later talked about poisoning the woman to make it look as if she had committed suicide. Cocaine. An inquest was held by Coroner Tingley on February 12th. This... I also saw February 13th in another article, so mm. around the 12th, 13th. <clears throat> yeah, we're just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, which we discussed in, the, uh, in last week's episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After which, most of the police effort turned to trying to convince the two men to confess and reveal the location of Pearl Bryan's head. I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess. What if it wasn't Bessie Little's head? What if it was Pearl Bryan's head in the container? In oh, the that they um, showed the yeah. courtroom? That's crazy. Oh. Fred Bryan, Pearl's brother, arrived in Newport to take his sister's body to the John P. Epley Mortuary in Cincinnati, where she was dressed in her high school graduation dress, and Jackson and Walling were brought in to view her headless body. They bought the dress that she graduated in or whatever, like wore under a graduation gown, I guess. Oh, I thought you meant they dressed her in the graduation gown with her hat and everything. No, I'm <laughs> assuming, I don't know, did they have life? caps like, and gowns back then? <laughs> they probably, I think they did, yeah. I think it was probably, like, to make her look, like, because it would have been your best dress kind of yeah. thing. So it probably would have been to make her look, like, sweet Maybe. and innocent. And, yeah, it's true. Her sister begged the two men to tell her the location of the head, but they allegedly showed no emotion, which was a display that they maintained throughout the trials. The sister? Her sister? 
Pearl's she, sister begged them to be like, please tell me where her head is. Like, just tell me where her head is. I, I was, And Jackson and Alonzo were like, no emotion. I thought you were saying that the sister had no mm-hmm. emotion and I was so confused. I was like, mm-hmm. wait, what? Pearl's body was taken back to Greencastle, Indiana, where she was buried in the Forest Hill Cemetery, 2181 South County Road, 50 West. Allegedly, people place a Lincoln head penny on her stone when they visit, with the thought that with this she will not be headless on Resurrection Day. I would have never thought to do something like that. Yeah. In my mind, like, I would have never been like, I'm going to put a penny here. Like, I would <clears throat> I don't know how it started, and I don't know. It's really cute. I would yeah. have never thought that. The trial of Scott Jackson lasted from the 21st of April until the 14th of May. Alonzo Welling's trial was from the 20th of May until the 18th of June. The jury were told by experts that, due to the amount of blood at the scene of the crime, Pearl had been alive during part of the decapitation. Jackson insisted he was innocent, as his defense counsel argued that Pearl died in in Ohio, but was beheaded in Kentucky. If this defense had been accepted, Scott and Alonzo would have been free men, as the court could not try them for the same offense in both states. Mm. Their story was as such. After the botched abortion in Cincinnati, Pearl was in great pain. The two men attempted to sedate her with chloroform. However, instead of putting her peacefully under, this accidentally killed her. Their defendants continued to say that uh, the men then brought Pearl's corpse to Kentucky, where they severed her head to hide her identity. They didn't plan on any witnesses being able to come forward to contest their story, however. A Cincinnati cabbie, George Jackson, no relation, was able to pick the two men he drove the night Pearl died from like a prison lineup. Mm. Um, on the night she was murdered, George picked up Alonzo, Scott and Pearl at the Wallingford Saloon. There, Alan Johnson, a bartender, witnessed Scott slip a powdered substance into her drink. When George arrived, Pearl appeared intoxicated and was unable to speak. Scott sat with her in the back seat while Alonzo sat next to George. The men told him to drive his horse across the bridge at the foot of Broadway, entering Newport at York Street. They would then direct him. According to the coachman's story, they went south on York to 11th Street, then west to the streetcar barn at Lowell, where they turned south onto Licking Pike. After passing the old 76 Distilling Company in Finchtown and the Andrews Steel Mill in Wilders, Jackson, who was apparently familiar with the area, instructed him to go up Johns Hill Road. This is in Indiana? <clears throat> Kentucky. Oh, Kentucky, sorry. So they've crossed the Ohio River and they're now in Kentucky. Mm. On reaching Alexandria Pike, they turned back north, continuing on the pike until reaching the fateful spot on the Lock Farm. There was no evidence at the trials indicating that any tolls were paid on the turnpike, so it was probably well past midnight with the gates open and the the gatekeepers asleep. When the northbound coach, coach reached the southern tip of the triangular Lock property, where South Fort Thomas Avenue joins with Alexandria Pike, Alexandria Pike, The driver remained on the pike down the hill after passing the James Metcalf house, which is now the site of the Woodfill School. Hmm. I was asking if this was in in another state because we have a lot of those same Mm. street names here in in Dayton. Yeah. It was like really weird. The girl lying in the back had been constantly moaning and groaning throughout the trip, but suddenly her crying became louder and louder with the cab driver becoming more and more frightened. Um, finally, just before reaching Grandview Avenue, he was told to stop the horse and the two men and the girl got out. 
As they started towards the fence with the men supporting the drugged girl, the thoroughly scared coachman picked up the reins and took off from Cincinnati as fast as the horse could go. Why was he scared? Well, I found a, another article that the story very differently. Um, George was a black man and he got freaked out and made to like jump out of the moving carriage and a revolver was put to the back of his head being like drive or else I'll kill you. They also said that they were doctors and they were delivering their patient like home. Um, When they got there, he was told to wait for them to come back. However, he, as a black man in 1896 in Kentucky, didn't want to hang around and be, like, at the scene of the crime of a dead white girl. Yeah. So took off running, left the horse and cart there. Really? So in one story, he drove the cart off and left them there, and the other, he left the cart there and just ran as, like, fast as he could. Wow. Um, Which would explain, if he had left the horse and cart, how the two men got back to Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, At that late at night. The jury made their conviction in spite of the absence of a full confession. Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling were found guilty of the murder of Pearl Bryan. The judge's sentence being that the two men would hang for their crime. There was no sure answer of what the men did with Pearl's head. The men claimed that they threw it into the Ohio River or buried it in a sandbar. Immediately after the killing, the two men returned to the bar carrying Pearl's leather valise, which is a small traveling bag or suitcase. It's like the ones that like open... Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah. I was, like, picturing, like, a doctor's bag kind yeah. of. But, like, floral. <laughs> it was brown uh, brown leather, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, the barkeep was asked to hang on to it for them. Mm, he idiots. claimed that whatever was in the bag was heavy and round, reminding him of a bowling ball. Ah, <clears throat> a head. However, the bag was retrieved the next day by Scott, who gave it to a different saloon keeper named Mr. Kugel? Kugel? K-E-U-G-E-L. Kugel. Kugel, I guess. Well, G-E makes the gist. Anyway. Kugel, (laughs) Kugel, um, was told to give it away. But when he opened it, found that the bag was stained with blood. Hmm. Why do they keep giving up to different, like, saloon owners? Empty. Yeah. Like, here, hold on to this for me, bud. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. During the trial, Kugel bought the bag to police chief Deicht, Deitch, D-E-I-T-S-C-H. Oh, yeah, Deitch. Who showed it to Scott. Quote, yes, that is Pearl Bryan's valise. Unquote. He recalled. The bag heavy in his lap. When Deitch asked if Pearl's head was ever in that bag, Scott rolled his eyes and wrung his hands. Quote, I suppose it was, I guess. End quote. This bag is now in possession of the Campbell Campbell County Historical Society Museum in Alexandria, Kentucky. Um, I want to smack Scott. Scott. Yeah. yeah. His name Scott? Yeah, Scott Jackson. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. You just said it, and I was like, oh my god, that's wrong. But, like, (laughs) Scott and Jackson could be first names, but they could also be last names. That's what I was thinking, Which is why I was like... (sighs) They could also be last names. (laughs) They could also be middle names. Exactly. (laughs) But, like, you know how people are usually, like, referring to people by their last name in things? I'm like, I'm calling him Jackson, and I'm calling him Scott, and it's like, which is the first name, which is the last name? Right. Um... 
The trial was allegedly so large that tickets were sold to the hearing and more than 5,000 people stood outside uh, the Newport, Kentucky courthouse. Holy crap. Waiting for any information about what was taking place inside. So is this the biggest case in Kentucky? I think so. And Bessie Little's was the biggest case in Dayton. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling remained in their jail in jail until the 20th of March, 1897 when all their appeals and continuances had expired. During this time, they were under heavy police protection, both in and out of uniform, due to the rumours that the two would be lynched by angry relatives and friends. Good God. I think Mamaw would hang us (laughs) if we did something wrong like that. You said lynched, right? Yeah, but by angry relatives of Pearl. Oh, I None thought you said of yes. their relatives. Scott's mother was Pearl. like, I'm going to get you. Well, Mama has told me many times, if a police is looking for you, I'm going to give you up. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the threat was so great that even though a jail ble- jailbreak occurred while they were incarcerated, Jackson and Walling remained in their cells. A crowd gathered early on the day of the execution, described as, quote, perfect, a perfect spring day. Oh, my God. End quote. And the condemned men were described as recklessly defiant of their situation, looking out through their jail window at the crowd and even greeting some people. Oh, my God. They were liking this. I believe they've done other things. I have. I believe they've done other... Do other... think they murdered Bessie? I don't... I don't know because the head's not missing. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I sometimes, sometimes serial killers gotta like spice yeah. it up and try to figure out things. Yeah. But I don't think this is their first murder. I just have a feeling. I really don't think so. <laughs> is it not? We'll get into it. I, 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 I kind of figured. <laughs> just me. It gets better. I just don't. I'm getting the because the way that they're like waving at people and everything too. I'm like, I get you. You've done this before. Maybe not have been caught for it, but Mm. you've done this before. The sheriff was inexperienced in hangings, so he asked Ed Faith of Lexington to make sure that the fellows worked. Bracken County Sheriff Maurice Hook also was in attendance due to his experience. The execution was set for 9am, but three minutes before, Jackson asked to talk to the minister in attendance, saying that he had a statement to make about Walling. Quote, I know that Alonzo M. Walling is not guilty of this murder, end quote. This Lies. was quickly wired to Governor William O. Bradley, who, telephoned, who telegraphed back that more details of the crime were needed. This delayed the hanging and Jackson was questioned again before being left alone to think over things for a few minutes. However, when officials returned, Jackson said that he had, quote, nothing further, end quote, to say, and the double execution was back on. The gallows were checked again at and at 11.32 a.m. the men were led to the gallows. Jackson was described to be standing, quote, erect and playing the part of an actor, end quote. While Walling trembled with his eyes downcast. Jackson was asked again if he had anything to say. Said an eyewitness, quote, Jackson hesitated fully two moments before he replied. So around 11.30, whatever, a.m., The trapdoors opened and Jackson and Walling were hanged. The location of Pearl's head remains a mystery today. According to reports, they were both offered life sentences instead of execution if they would reveal the location of Pearl's head. However, both men refused. 
It was the last public hanging in Campbell, Campbell County. However, um, the two men were dental students who would have who would often practice on cadavers. Mm. These bodies were not easily to come by, not easily come by back then. Mm. So it's likely, but hearsay, that Scott sold the anonymous head to his college. Mm. Perhaps uh, the campus furnace was used to cremate it. Yeah. One theory has um, led Pearl Bryant to become a legend. Songs have been written in her honor. She even became a part of the satanic panic of the 1980s and 90s, when rumors flew flew that Alonzo had used her head to worship the devil at what is now Bobby Mackey's Music World. Oh my god. Where her supposed ghost is said to draw ghost hunters worldwide. Uh, this legend of the Pearl Bryan murder is a little different, however. Most of the players are the same. Pearl Bryan, the daughter of a wealthy farmer who was an attractive young woman living in Greencastle, Indiana in 1896. However, her boyfriend was played by one William Wood, who, if you'll recall, was Pearl's second cousin. Mm. Um, son of a local Methodist minister. Unsure of what to do and confused, Pearl let her love convince her to have an abortion. Wood had a friend by the name of Scott Jackson, who was attending the Ohio College of Dental Surgery in Cincinnati by day, but a member of an occult group by night. <laughs> the group met in a former slaughterhouse in Wilder, Kentucky, constructed, constructed back in the 1850s. During its prime, it was one of the largest packing houses in the region for many years. The slaughterhouse closed down in the early 90, 1890s. The basement of the packing house became a ritual site for occultists like Scott Jackson and a small satanic group made up of local residents. <laughs> Pearl left her parents home on the 1st of February 1896, telling them that she was going to Indianapolis. Instead, she met with Jackson and his roommate Alonzo Walling in Cincinnati. Jackson's medical skills were much more inept than he had led his friend William Wood to believe. He first tried to induce an abortion using cocaine. After that, he tried to use dental tools, further botching the operation. The three of them then left Ohio, traveling over the Ohio River into Kentucky, where Jackson took them to a secluded spot near Fort Thomas, where he, they finally murdered Pearl Bryan and severed her head using dental instruments. Her body was found around 200 feet off the Alexander Turnpike, less than two miles from the abandoned slaughterhouse. While her head was never found, Legend says that it was used during a satanic ritual in the slaughterhouse before being dumped in the well in the basement that was once used to hold the blood and refuse from the animals that were drained there. Wood was brought in as an accomplice, however charges against him were dropped when he agreed to testify against the other two men. Stories spread that Jackson and Walling were afraid of suffering, quote, Satan's wrath, unquote, uh, if they revealed the location of Pearl's head, so they remained tight-lipped. The slaughterhouse was then a closely guarded secret, and other occultists would have been exposed if they had talked. One reporter commented later that Walling, as the noose was being slipped over his head, threatened to come back and haunt the area after his death. The writer also stated a few days later in an article in the Kentucky Post that an evil eye had fallen on many of the people connected to the Pearl Bryan case. Legend has it that many of the police officials and attorneys involved in the case later met with bad luck and tragic ends. So, it's a little different to the story of what was everywhere else. Um, yeah. The same. I 
I know that there are people out there who do sacrifices and stuff. Yeah. But I don't think that that is what's happening in this story. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that he did that. I don't think that they like worshipped the devil and like with her head. I think what happened. Because what I'm picturing. It's like a Jeffrey Dahmer situation mm. where he just kind of kept the head and stuff. Did they search the apartments? Are there like I would imagine stuff? so. I honestly think that her head probably ended up in the furnace at the college. Do you think so? That's yeah. the most probable because if she was donated as a cadaver, yeah. One, the teachers, despite having a shortage of them, is going to be like, "Where the heck did you get this? Yeah, severed head. Yeah. <laughs> Two, hey, this looks like the woman that's all over the newspapers. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I think they cremated it to like yeah. destroy the evidence. I don't know. That's probably what happened, honestly. I don't know why they wouldn't just do that for the rest of her body if they were going to do it with the head. I don't know. Maybe it was a small furnace. Oh, maybe. Um, I have more, though. Oh, well, yeah. So, Bobby Mackey's Music World. Mm -hmm. In the early 20th century, the old slaughterhouse was demolished, and the lot sat, sat empty until the 1920s when a new structure was built. The building served as a casino, nightclub, and speakeasy during Prohibition. Prohibition. Multiple murders were alleged, uh, allegedly took place there, but to avoid questioning by the local police, the bodies were dumped elsewhere. When Prohibition ended in ni- uh, 1933, E.A. Uh, Brady, or Buck as he was known, brought the building and named it the Primrose, turning it into, ex- uh, into a successful casino. That sounds familiar, the Primrose. Cincinnati mobsters allegedly tried to get oh. in on the operation after noticing the Primrose's success. Uh, but Brady refused to sell it. This led to a fight breaking out in the parking lot. Um, Buck drew a gun on a mobster named Albert Red Masterson Mm. um, and was charged with attempted murder before leaving the casino business in 1946. He took his own life in 1965, apparently cursing the location before doing so. The building later reopened as a nightclub named the Latin Quarter in the 50s. Here, Joanna, who was said to wear rose-scented perfume, a dance hall girl and the daughter of the club's owner, fell in love with a singer named Robert Randall. Remember that name? Okay. Who was a performer there. Robert was? Robert Randall, yep. Okay. She fell pregnant and intended to run off with the younger singer. However, her father forbade the romance, using his criminal connections to have Randall killed. Oh my god. Upon finding out what had happened, Joanna poisoned her father before taking her own life in the basement of the building. She was five months pregnant. What? How many months was, uh... Five months. Pearl? Yeah. The police were said to have kept a close eye on the building, raiding it from time to time. For why? Because it was a... It was run by, um... Monsters? Uh, yeah. Oh, Okay. Or at least a gentleman with no gentleman. connections. Ah. Um, on the final raid, the gambling tables and slot machines were removed. Which many say was Buck's curse coming to fruition. What? Um, he When he killed oh. himself, he cursed the, the casino. Oh, yeah. So having the gaming tables and slot machines removed was like oh, part okay. of his curse. Mm. Uh, in the 70s, it had a short run as a hard rock cafe... But after a fatal shooting right outside of the establishment, the local authorities were forced to shut it down. Hmm. 
Enter Bobby Mackey. Mm-hmm. Full name, Robert Randall Mackey. Purely coincidence. That's so weird. Um, in 1978, the young country music singer and his wife, Janet, purchased the building and turned it into a music hall and tavern that still stands and operates today. From day one, paranormal phenomena has reportedly been present. In 2008, in the first ever episode of Ghost Adventures, which is <laughs> one of my favorite shows. Me too. <laughs> um, the team investigated Bobby Mackey's and interviewed the man himself, who claimed that he's skeptical but doesn't doubt the word of family, employees, police, and patrons who have experienced strange activity. He says he's he's skeptical, but doesn't he have... Yeah, but he's like, well, you know, it could be explained as this, or, you know, like... Maybe he doesn't want people to, like, shy away from it or something. Despite the help of both clergy and physic psychics... That's, sorry, I wrote this at, like, 1 a.m. <laughs> um, psychics... A dark force still seems to linger. Carl Lawson, the first employee of the club, was the caretaker who lived in the small apartment right above the club. During his time there, he experienced strange things. The jukebox would play while it was without power. The anniversary waltz, which wasn't a track in the machine. What? Yep. He saw a malevolent figure behind the bar who no one else saw. He even spoke to Joanna, who would leave a strong scent of roses behind. This led people to think that Carl was a crazy man who would talk to himself. Bobby Mackey wasn't impressed about Carl spreading his ghost stories, believing that he would drive away his customers with his nonsense. Mm. However, that all changed when Janet had a terrifying encounter in the basement. And this story is two ways. Mm. So the first is, while she was alone in the basement one day, Janet was suddenly grabbed around the waist by an unseen force. She was lifted and thrown back, feeling as if she was being pushed in the direction of the stairs. And this is where the story varies, however. One source claims that she heard a hysterical female voice shouting, get out, get out. Janet was, like Pearlie and Joanna, five months pregnant at the time. What's happening? (laughs) Another source claims that she had been overcome by by the scent of roses in the basement grabbed around the waist, picked up, thrown down, and pushed down the stairs by a force that resembled sketches of Alonzo wailing, screaming, get out, get out. Mm. Um, Alonzo's the better story. Or maybe, maybe mm-hmm. Pearl and the other girl's a better story because they're like, hey, this is evil down here. We've got people back. Well, I mean, yeah. And then she, in the other story, she heard, she smelt the scent of roses. Mm-hmm. Before it happened. So maybe Pearl, uh, maybe Joanna was trying to protect her, but yeah. couldn't. So either way, they're fairly similar. It's just a female verse versus a apparition and a male mm. voice. A female voice, that is. So after telling staff about her encounter, however, the other staff members started opening up about their own strange ex- events. Everyone had kept their stories to themselves, likely because they feel to be labeled crazy like Carl. Yeah. The well is one of the most haunted places in the building. I think it's so weird that there's just a well in the bottom. Of like, or in the bottom. That's where they would... In the basement. Um, bleed, sorry. Bleed out the cattle and the things that they were... So they would, like, over the well. When was it a slaughterhouse? 1850s. I thought I you talked said it, about it. I, I thought you said it was a, um, a packing plant. Slaughterhouse and packing plant. Oh, maybe I just didn't catch the slaughterhouse part. Um, so the well is one of the most haunted places in the building. Carl had sprinkled holy water in the well uh, on more than one occasion after being advised to do so. Um, he wasn't super 
religious at this point. Um, this seemed to make the spirits more agitated, however. Things would fly off the shelves in the club, lights would switch on and off, and the employees were even physically attacked. People would be scratched and their hair would be pulled. An exorcism on Carl was performed in 1994, which made things even worse with the ghosts, uh, with the ghosts starting to take things out on customers as well. Wow. Hmm? I was just saying, wow, sorry. Oh, I think you said why, and I'm like, I don't know, I, I didn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> Tell me why. Um, I, I do not uh, claim to speak for the ghosts, <laughs> Kayla. <laughs> Um, eventually Bobby decided to live in harmony with the ghosts and things have settled down for the most part. Posting, a, uh, with the, uh, with him posting a sign that reads, quote, warning to our patrons, this establishment is purported to be haunted. Management is not responsible and cannot be held liable for any actions of ghosts slash spirits on the premises. <laughs> End quote. Um, occasionally someone feels like they're being caressed by an unseen hand or gets poked in the side both of those however the ghosts are reported to have a rather critical opinion when it comes to music hmm. if a band performs that they dislike they start throwing things again to scare them away from the stage what? um some of the paranormal activity uh, and speculation discussed in the episode of ghost adventures is yep. as follows so some still believe that the building's basement holds a gateway or portal to hell itself a reference to the long abandoned slaughterhouse well um, stairs near the well in the old slaughterhouse have been deemed, quote, the stairs that lead to nowhere, end quote. Phantom footsteps can be often be heard on these stairs. Some believe that spirits can't cross flowing water, so the rare northern current of the current of the Licking River may be keeping the dark forces trapped inside the building. Carl Lawson claims to have been demonically possessed by the spirits. His exorcism was performed in the club by a minister. Sadly, he died on the 26th of January, 2012. The Ghost Adventures crew returned in October of 2012, 2012 to pay their respects to Carl. Billy was sent in to videotape the memorial and captured an EVP recording that seemed to suggest that Carl had joined the ghostly residence at Bobby Mackey's. I remember that because they said that they would never enter again. Yes. Uh, Aaron and Zach said that. So they both um, had... Um, spirits follow them home yeah. that wreaked havoc upon their personal lives. Yeah, and um, people they love too. Yeah, yes. I remember that. Um, I believe it's said in here further on, but um, some of the EVP recorded was like saying about like killing wives or like yeah. dead wife and stuff like that. Um, a patron claims to have experienced suffocating heat, a flying trash cra- trash can. <laughs> And a man with a handlebar mustache repeating, die game, die game, which is apparently Latin for dying well or dying good. Oh, really? Um, in the men's restroom. Mm. Oh my god, that's so terrifying. Oh, wait, because the first time that they went to Bobby Mackey's, Nick was with them, right? And he got so, yeah. possessed by the will and everything. Apparently yeah. they all do. Yeah. Um, Bobby Mackey claims not to be a believer, but he did write a song entitled, titled Joanna, about the young girl who committed suicide in the basement in the 1950s. Bobby Mackey's friend, Doug Hensley, wrote a book, wrote the book Hate Hell's Gate, which connects the events of the past with the hauntings of the present. Historic photos of Pearl Bryan match witnesses' description of the headless ghost dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing, and photos of Buck Brady also match descriptions of often-seen ghosts. Hot spots in the club include the spotlight room and the catwalk over the stage, 
the well in the basement, the old china room, the platform area near the kitchen, and the platform area near the kitchen. People have also claimed to see ghosts in big pitted mirror in the main room. A club manager claims that on several occasions she would go through the club and make sure everything was turned off and closed down for the night. Then hours later, she'd find that the bar lights were on, the front doors were unlocked, and the jukebox would be playing the anniversary waltz, even though the jukebox was still unplugged and did not contain the song. Another club employee has seen a dark, very angry man behind the bar and a spirit who called herself Joanna. She would often speak to him and leave the scent of roses in her wake. So, that is Pearl Bryan and Bobby Mackey. That's insane. I yeah, Bobby Mackey still is open. I, I looked it up to be like, I was like, surely by now. This was 2008. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. COVID did a number on everyone. Yeah. Surely. No, they open Friday night and Saturday night, uh, both until 2 a.m., I believe. Hmm. Yeah. And it's just a bar? It's, yeah, a, a nightclub and tavern is how it we was like, marketed. I want to know how their potatoes are. Mm, That's true. the only thing I you care about. You can judge a place by potatoes. You can, very much so. If the potatoes I mean, are bad, the ghosts probably not that great. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I was thinking potatoes with the side of ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank um, you guys so much. Yeah. Um, we'll so be back January 4th. 4th, is it? That's Marina's birthday. Maybe. Let me check. She probably doesn't listen to these, but... Happy birthday, Miranda. <laughs> Next episode. Sorry, January 2nd. <laughs> oh, January 2nd. Okay, happy not birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Never mind, then. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see you on the 2nd. We're just going to take a break and try to have have a... During the holidays, because this is our first run-through with the podcast and stuff, yes. and we just want to make sure that everything goes smoothly. So we are planning on doing seasons... Mm-hmm. In that we w- we won't have a month long break every time. This no. is just because it's the holidays mm-hmm. and um, it's been a crazy year. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have a week or two break. Um, yeah, in between seasons, and the seasons will be much longer. It just kind yeah. of worked out that this was the number of seasons we had until Christmas. Or yeah, until December, and we didn't know that we were doing the seasons until a little bit way through. So we were right. just trying to figure things out and stuff. But we figured this is a perfect time to stop. Um, after this next episode well after this 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 will be the final. oh this is yeah oh this is i forgot after this episode we figured it was a good time to stop because of me working 11 days straight through and stuff so yeah. it'd be just a really good time to just kind of like okay let's take a break right um and a breather because people are crazy around the holidays <laughs> definitely everyone's like i love the holidays and then everyone's like evil yeah and we i'm like both why pretty demanding <laughs> jobs, jobs. Yeah. Uh, so. Especially throughout the holidays. Kids yeah. get nuts mm-hmm. around And parents vacations. want their dogs groomed right now, right and, before Christmas. Even yeah. though we tell you months ahead of time to book them. So if you're and listening, book your dogs ahead of time. Parents want free babysitting so they can yeah. do Christmas shopping. Oh my gosh. It's, yeah. Um, but I'm sorry this is getting cut a little bit short. I We've For now. been recording, well, I mean this episode. We're not yeah. hanging around lately. Um, I have endometriosis and I'm having a little bit of a flare up and need to drive home before it gets too bad. Um, but I feel like we kind of discussed enough in the, the thing. I think it's going to be great. We won't have Um, to cut out much either. So no, it's about the same pausing between my trips to go die and Taylor's Uh, spare bathroom. I feel so bad. Every time you get up, I'm like, are you okay? I know. I feel awful. (laughs) 
I just I haven't had a flare up in months, and now oh no, this is like I'm gonna go home and take some endone, which is like an is. opioid basically. Really? Yeah, <laughs> it's like what are morph- opioids again? It's like morphine in a pill form. Morphine. It's like it knocks me out. Oh okay. Like it. Makes- it's a high. Like it's a very. Ex- ex- why was so, I about to say exquisite painkiller? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I mean, it is. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like, it's a codeine okay, okay. kind of painkiller, but it's it kind of makes your brain go a little bit fuzzy, and it makes me fall asleep. That's the stuff they give you in the hospital, right? It, it, yeah, it is. Stuff. Because when my flare-ups are that bad, nothing really works. Oh, that's awful. But, um, but yeah, yeah, on that depressing note, <laughs> um, we will see you um, in the new year. With better stuff. <laughs> With bigger, better stuff. Hopefully. Bigger, better. Some exciting new things. Yes. As of, actually, this episode, I think our new logo would go live, right? It's I think live, so, right? yeah. yeah. We have a new so, logo. let us know what you think. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a YouTube channel. and Yes. We're going to have a theme song and yeah. an intro and, and like all that stuff. Yeah. So. Uh, some interesting, fun things. Yes. Uh, I believe our first episode back, we are going to be discussing the squonk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I adore. And we're going to have Alex and Jay's guests. Yes. <laughs> which are... Our first uh, special guests. Yeah. Stars. Jay is her husband and my cousin, and Alex is my fiance. And so. not my cousin. And not, no. <laughs> and not your cousin. Thanks. It's yeah. the incest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, we're going to have those on, so hopefully it'll be, like, a a good transition to kind of come into the new year of being, like, yeah. instead of being, like, death and murder, it'll be kind of like a, hey, here's oh, a silly cryptid. I, seriously, you have no idea how fantastic, the squonk is my spirit. It's. Just, I don't want to hear anything about it. I want to be I completely surprised. I'm so excited. Yes, nobody <laughs> look it up. Don't even let the, the, I, I'm done. <laughs> Don't let them bully you into looking things up. <laughs> no, I was like, don't like let Hugs the excitement get in, oh. like get 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 the better of you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, <clears throat> but yeah, we love you guys. Have a merry Christmas, happy Thanksgiving, yes, happy New Year, happy everything. And Just we'll, have a happy. Yeah, have happy. Have a happy. Oh, I love that. Have a happy. <laughs> have a happy. Ha- uh, we'll see you on the second. Okay. Bye. Bye. Guys. Thanks for listening to the Ghost Tea Podcast. You can find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash ghost podcast or on Instagram at ghost underscore podcast. That's G-H-O-S-T-E-A podcast. If you have any topics you'd like us to discuss or just want to say hi, you can email us at ghostteapodcast at outlook.com.